I'm Alan Winson, co-producer and host of Bar Crawl Radio Podcast, which is created out of our small studio on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. In early spring 2020, our city's entertainment venues were closed, and I wanted to hear from our artists how they were coping. Thus, Hunker Down Podcast was created. I had many interesting conversations with amazing creatives, and so now and again, we're going to borrow from the Hunker Down archives. So... Here we go. It takes a pandemic. Okay, you fill in the rest. For instance, it takes a pandemic for me to finally clean out my desk. It takes a pandemic to start reading that pile of New Yorkers. It takes a pandemic for me to finally learn to fake. Well, for audiences of live performance, it takes a pandemic to cherish our actors and musicians. With our great jazz venues and theaters closed, live performance has stopped. But actors and musicians continue to create. They have to. It's who they are. For this Hunker Down podcast, I talk with these artists who perform for a living about how social distancing is affecting their work now and when this is all over, about their dedication to the art of live performance. For 10 very successful seasons, Catherine Irby played Detective Alexandra Eames, the sidekick to Vincent D'Onofrio's Robert Gorin, on Law and Order, Criminal Intent. Prior to Criminal Intent, Miss Irby appeared as a death row inmate on the award-winning TV series Oz, a very young death row inmate. This talented actor has worked steadily in television and film since she graduated from NYU in 1989 and most recently appeared in Sam Levinson's teen slasher film Assassination Nation. It was a lot of fun meeting Miss Irby, and we began our conversation with her first television role right out of uh, college, Chicken Soup, starring Jackie Mason and Lynn Redgrave. Catherine Irby, thank you so much for joining me on Hunker Down. Um, I'm, I'm so appreciative of Joel Bernstein for putting us together. I mean, he's, he's, found, he's found some lovely actors for me to talk. I feel so fortunate to get to to meet you people. I just uh, met Kathleen Chalfont. The, yeah, the other she's day. my neighbor and my friend. Wow. And Joel and I said, listened to that conversation. It was great. She was good, wasn't she? And Joel told me that you two met at a play back in 2010. You were in the audience for a play, Navinas for a Lost Hospital about St. Vincent's. Was it 10 years ago? I don't think it was 10 years ago, but may, I think it was more recent. Okay. But yes, it was that play okay. because um, I used to live down the street from St. Vincent's and that's where my daughter was born. And Rattlestick is a theater I've worked with and I'm associated with as sort of an artistic member of their community and, and Kathleen's a friend of mine. So yeah, I was so happy to be there. Right. I know she was performing in it, so I kind of I, I assumed it was the year that it was done, which was to I think no 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 it couldn't have been back then. I'm you know what I'm looking at the date for when uh, the Vincent Hospital closed, so 
that's that's probably not the date. How how no, you... I think it was more like two years or a year ago. Okay. A year and a uh, half ago, okay. maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So Joel's been very good to me. How are you and your family getting along in this COVID nineteen environment we're in? We've been very lucky. Um yeah. knock wood, no one in my immediate family <laughs> yeah. has gotten sick yet that we know of. Um and I have a couple of friends who uh who were infected with the virus, but they survived. And then I have a very close friend who works in my building whose family was just decimated by it. Right. So, what neighborhood are you in? I live in Cobble Hill. Okay, all right. Because some some areas of the city are are really decimated, and and some aren't. I'm we're on the Upper West Side, and mm-hmm. uh, I hear sirens going West End Avenue all all the time. And yeah. yet, and yet, people are out there. So, are you worried about this? So you have two kids, right? I have two kids. My daughter's twenty-four, and my son's sixteen. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I I was just uh, I wanted to pull in the fact that you had done in two thousand eighteen Assassination Nation, and I pulled a quote from that uh, in which you said, "I guess your generation, meaning the the younger people, uh, is a bit desensitized." Is one of the lines of your of your characters. Uh, are your children desensitized to this? Do you think this will be part of their imagination now as they move forward in their life? They are hardly desensitized. They're incredibly sensitive to it all. And my son, um, he he was. I mean, he's had a few really tough moments during this pandemic, and. Um, you know, I think the young people are getting harder hit than maybe many emotionally. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and yeah, and when you say your son was hard hard hit, are you talking about an emotional hard hit? I mean, yeah, like yeah. sort of he just has had a few moments of being very very upset, despairing about it. You know, the year started with the possible threat of World War 3. And it's been one thing after another. And now, you know, his he's not a big school fan. And he was even saying he would prefer to be in school. He can't. It's very difficult to learn online. And he misses his friends. And he worries about his relationships with people who he wouldn't necessarily talk to, but would see in the hall. Things like that. It's, he feels very isolated and... Yeah, as as a, I mean, as a young teenager, he's uh, you said he's sixteen, mm-hmm. right? He, uh, I mean, you, your brain is still developing, and those social connections are so important. And now, does he see his friends at all, or does it just Zoom kind? Yeah, of it is. It's online stuff. Although they did, they were going last weekend. They went for two socially distanced, masked and gloved bike rides. Oh. So that was great. Your parents, uh, I was interested to learn that your father is a research geneticist. Does he still work? <laughs> well, they, he is a very vulnerable person to this virus. Ooh. So he just turned 80 and he's in the process. We're in the process of forcing him to retire. So because of his age and his AFib um, condition uh he's very very vulnerable to this uh virus so they've forced him to stay home and soon he will be on vacation in about a week his vacation will start and he won't ever return to work you grew up outside of boston in newton but yet you did um a lot of work in chicago in your early career and i just wanted to talk about your early career 
Um, When did you decide, Catherine, that you wanted to be an actor? Well, I was lucky. You said I grew up in Newton, which is true. And the Newton public schools have an unbelievable art program, all, all arts, you know, music and plays, you know, the plays were really supported. I sang all through school. We, I was part of the Newton all city chorus, the troubadours. Um, And so I very early on as early as I think it was first grade, I played the little red hen in my first grade classes, uh, production of the little red hen. (laughs) And, um, I think that was because I had a red dress that my mom had made me, <laughs> and not only, because of, for any other reason. Um, you had the costume, so you were hired. <laughs> that's not the only time that's ever happened to me, by the way. Uh, but uh, so early on, I got that incredible feeling of the family of the you know group of people working together to do these shows, and then the you know the applause and praise and um so i grew up dancing you know taking ballet lessons and jazz lessons and singing and doing these plays and and the one i ended up being able to make a living at is is the acting which yeah did your did your parents support you throughout all this well they really did um, through my growing up, my my grade school days, um, but when it became clear that I was going to try to turn this into a career, they were not um, excited for me. They were worried for very good reason that it was not um, a career that had any kind of certainty uh, built into it. Yeah. You know, at the time, the world was very different. Um, when... Um, my long-term job on Law & Order ended for the first time because we, we finished and then they had us come back for a season. But when, when um, we were done um, the first time, my mom said, you know, before you started this job, acting was not a, a, a profession that you had any kind of security in. And now there are no positions that have any kind of security. So you've now, you know, the rest of the world has caught up to you. Wow. I wanted to go back to your early acting career. You studied Mm -hmm. at NYU. You were an undergraduate there. And you, as a very young person, got a job even before you graduated. I worked quite a bit before I graduated. I, um, I have not been much of a rule follower since I became a teenager. And so um, for better or for worse. (laughs) And uh, so while I was at NYU, it wasn't as strict as Juilliard, but they really frowned upon working. They really wanted us to focus on school. For some reason, when I was a junior, my mother's husband at the time, um, John Magnarelli, he called in a favor and and got someone to shoot a headshot, which I wish I had it to show you. It's kind of hysterical. My it's very 80s. This was, you know, I I graduated from NYU in 1989, so this probably was 1987. And um, I, my hair is blowing back. My eyebrows are gigantic. You know, I uh, so I I had these 
these headshots taken for free because I couldn't have done it otherwise. I think I was making like four twenty-five an hour working in the store in the East Village. And I sent out my headshots and one agent called me and expected my mother to answer the phone. And this was Beth Rosner at the J. Michael Bloom Agency in their children's department. And so she and I met and started working together and we had I mean, she sent me out and I would go out for anything. I started in my junior year as an extra on soap operas. And by my senior, yeah, it was my junior year. But by the time I was um, a senior, I had, I worked, um, I worked my way up to lines into a recurring role on soap operas and then booked that pilot. And I also did an independent movie in Florida for a couple weeks during finals that my teachers let me, you know, they let me have a pass or I handed things in late. And I mean, I, I went to SMU um, drama school when I was very young and it was the same kind of thing. They did not want you to do professional work. They just wanted you to hone your, your skills. Right. Yeah. But you got this job on chicken soup in 1989, and I'm, I was really curious about that because as soon as I saw Jackie Mason, and I went, that's right. Jackie mm -hmm. Mason did a sitcom for a short time, and then there you were right after Jackie Mason and Lynn Redgrave when they started listing. You're, you were the top after, after the top top. You were, you were there. Uh, and I, I, I watched a couple of the shows, and it was really kind of cute. Uh, I mean, the set was kind of cute, and Jackie, Jackie Mason, I'm going to tell you this, and I'll yes, yeah. I don't think you should do that. I mean, he's he's a real character. Um, yeah. uh, what what was it like working with Lynn Redgrave and Jackie Mason? Can you remember back then? Well, I can. You know, I just felt so freaking lucky to be working. I mean, when I booked that job, I was making, as I said, like $6 and change an hour in the East Village, going to school. I had very little, you know, I had no money. I had- What job did you have? I'm curious. What did you, where did you work? What I store? worked at a store called Back From Guatemala in the East Village clothing on 6th Street. Yeah. yeah, it was a, it wasn't so, they had clothing, stuff from all over the world, handmade jewelry and instruments and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So you got this job on Chicken Soup. So I got this job on chicken soup and found myself in Los Angeles, which was not a place I had ever been. And uh, I have to say, I cried for like three days till I sorted out which way was which and how to get to work. And it, Lynn Redgrave, I, I, I don't even know how to describe what an angel she was, is, you know, uh, in this world. And I think anyone who ever worked with her or knew her would say that. So she created this family. And um, Johnny Pinto, who played my younger brother, his mom, Terry, and Johnny and Johnny's little sister all had to move from New York. So we, we did family dinners all the time. Lynn would um, encourage us all to go out after the tapings. We would go get Thai food. She oh, would yeah. have me over to her house. So I, I, was, I was really young, you know. I, you were I, young. You were yeah. really young. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I was young. I mean, I was a little older than I would have been if I hadn't lost a couple of years in high school. I, I dropped out of high school for a little bit and then... Luckily, my parents sent me to a, a boarding school. And um, so I was a little older than I would have been, but it, it was I was scared. And it was wonderful to have that 
that family-like um, feeling with the cast. And I'm still sort of friends with, with some of them and no. Kathy Lynn Hayes who played my aunt and it was wonderful. I would come home on the weeks off because we would do an, three episodes, an episode a week, and then we'd have a week off. It was an f- amazing schedule. Amazing. Well, what about school? Were you able to still go to school? I was done. I graduated. Done. I okay. graduated from NYU right after I uh, did the pilot. Wow. Or, yeah, right after we had done the pilot. All right. You have buddies at NYU who were actors, and they were trying to make a living. And here you plop right into chicken soup, a I great big matzo ball in a chicken soup. I mean, did, you, did they talk to you and say, oh, my God, Catherine, how did that happen? And, or did they know that you were, you were just really good and you were going to make it? I don't know, but... Um, they must have been jealous. I mean, I would have been like... You know. I would imagine no one said anything to me. I mean, Phil Hoffman, was at, we were at Strasbourg together. We were in the same class. Ah. And we had lots of friends in common. There were a lot of very talented people in my in my class. Um, but I, th- I, you know, it was it was sort of like a whirlwind. I left and I did that, and then I came back. Uh, I, I lived out in L.A. until it was canceled, and then when I came home um, just before Thanksgiving. The first audition I had back was for The Grapes of Wrath on Broadway. I had never done a professional play before, so I got cast in The Grapes of Wrath, and then I left Grapes of Wrath to do What About Bob? And then when that was done, I came back and I I auditioned for um, The Speed of Darkness while I was, I think I was in rehearsals or already performing a play at the WPA Theater Mm. Um, so it really, everything I, for, for many years, I just went from one job to another and felt like, you know, just like the luckiest person in the world, um, having gone from, you know, confused and scared high school dropout to a college graduate to a working actor. And, and you've been pretty much working ever since. Pretty much. There was a period of time because I started the, all of those early roles. I was playing teenagers. Um, the independent film I did before I got cast. I mean, I think Chicken Soup, I was playing a 16 year old. And the independent film I did a month or two before we did the pilot, I, I was cast as 11. And then they fixed it to 13 in post. Maybe 13. Yeah. yeah. Maybe. Yeah. But, you know, it was different then the way people looked and the way people were cast. Sure, so. sure. Did, did you, did, when you first, uh, you know, signed up for um, acting at NYU, did you see yourself as a TV actor, as a film and TV? I mean, you pretty much have done a lot of TV. I've um, done a lot of TV. Um, uh, I don't, you know, I, I don't know that I had a vision of what my, I would be. As an, as an actor, I don't know that I even knew for sure that I would ever make a living doing it. I hoped I would, obviously, but um, when I was at NYU, I was very, very, very interested in political theater, and it's now come full circle. I do work with Theater of War Productions. I don't know if you've heard of them, but that I highly recommend... Um, taking a look. I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm nearly positive that Kathy also does it. I think she's, she was doing it well before I was. Theater of War. Theater of War Productions. I will definitely yeah. look it up because we, we do on uh, our other podcast, Bar Crawl Radio, 
we do a lot of work with poets for peace and and that that, that sort of thing witness against torture that oh are, that are, great yeah. good and, for you and that's so we, great yeah we do a lot of that work i want to get talk about your theater work and your work at yeah. steppenwolf uh, but uh, but first i would be amiss if i didn't talk about law and order criminal intent uh, sure. And I, I don't want to emphasize it too much, but you were on that show for nine, ten years? Ten. It, it was probably somewhere between ten and eleven. And when you were doing that, that's all you were doing. I mean, that must have been taking up all your time. It was nine months out of the year for the first four years. And um, we worked 18-hour days, many of those days. Uh and then this, the last six, we did 11 episodes of the 22. And so I would do one episode and then be off for the length of an episode, which is eight days. It t- took eight days to shoot each one, right. eight business days. Um, so I, at that time, when we started it, my daughter was five. And then my son was born um, three years later. So... All of my free time I spent with my family. I was unwilling to do any other work besides that. You um, describe yourself as very Midwestern, though you're not from Midwest. Right? My family, my parents okay. both grew right. up there. Yeah. In, in that way. So I just do what I like to do and what I think I do well is not very loud. But but you played these roles on Oz. You played a, a murderer, mm-hmm. right? A very, very young girl who looked very innocent, but... <laughs> I, I killed somebody. Um, and then on Law and Order with Vincent D'Onofrio, you, you played his, um, you know, the word keeps coming to my mind, sidekick. It doesn't seem fair because you were more than that in, in, in the role. But this, this is not part of your background. I mean, law, the, the legal law, crime is not. How, how did you get, how do you feel that you got into this niche of of either being the criminal or the criminal investigator. How, oh, how did that funny. happen? Well, I don't know, actually. I really don't know. I, I know that Oz came out of my doing an episode of Homicide in which I played a woman who murdered her boyfriend for giving her AIDS. Um, Reasonable. And, yeah. Yep. Yeah, right. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, Dick Wolf... So Homicide, obviously, was Tom Fontana, and Oz was Tom Fontana as well. And uh, Dick and Dick Wolf and Tom Fontana share a lot of the same taste in actors. So, you know, I just don't know. I don't yeah. know. I, I showed up for the audition for Law & Order, and Dick cast me, and I, I, I wasn't... Law & Order wasn't really on my radar, except as a phenomenon of, you know these two very successful shows being shot in New York that a lot of my friends were working on and they would call me to come in and do guest roles. But I, a lot of times they were at the last minute and I, I like a little bit of notice. So I, I hadn't ever been on the show before. And Alexandra Eames, to me, I, when I was watching the show and I, I watched a couple recently Mm -hmm. and I, I, there's one in particular I wanted to talk to you about. She's there. She's a presence. She um, supports the D'Onofrio character. Um, uh, I forgot his name in the show. Uh, Goran. Goran, right. Uh, Goran, yeah. And the Goran character is certainly developed in a, in a very aggressive way. Yours, your character was developed in a very quiet way, mm-hmm. would, you, would you say? Did we learn more about, about Eames as, as the 10 years of 
of the show progressed? We did. Um, you know, Law and Order started out, I think the whole premise is to not learn that much about the main characters. The drama, you know, the whole premise of it is that each episode be all encaps encapsulated in the episode so that people don't have to pay attention and have seen every episode to know what's going on. So that was in the, the very premise of the show. But I think in order to entice someone of Vincent's talent and caliber and um, the way they envisioned criminal intent was as Sherlock and Watson. Um, and, oh, okay. and Gorn was, you know, uh, basically Sherlock sure. Holmes and Eames was a kind of sidekick, as you said, um, to Gorn, but I kind of didn't get that memo and I never really <laughs> liked that. <laughs> and I've learned about myself that if I don't like, like I, I have selective hearing, I have selective um, knowing and, um, and I just kind of never took that. So much of, of Alexandra Eames comes out of me being annoyed that I had nothing to do for much of the time. Um, you and know, so I would Catherine, joke. Uh, Catherine, that's when I watch that show, it's like, you know, you can't help but watching D'Onofrio because it's like, he's like, he's right. like, why? Like, Oh yeah. Right. It's like, yeah. But, but you're in the, there you are right next to him. And I'm going like, she seems a little pissed. <laughs> that was, I probably was. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that job took up so much of our time that, you know, there were day, there was a day when my dog died. My dog died Oy. during filming and Jeez. we took uh, publicity photos that day. So I look at those publicity Oy. photos and I'm like, oh, Oy. my dog died. And yet I had to put on a smile. And that's the job in a nutshell. You know, life goes on no matter you're getting divorced. You have appendicitis. I worked for 16 hours with appendicitis and I left the set at the end of the day and went to St. Vincent's and had my appendix removed. And Oof. then they had to shut down for the rest of the season because I couldn't come back to work right away. Oh my goodness. So it, people don't often know that about that kind of job. It takes everything. You know, you know I, it, it occurred to me as I was thinking about this, I mean, it's a very unique experience. Very few actors have that job that goes on consistently. You have the same character. You get to develop it however you're allowed to. There must There's a politics to any kind of play. I mean, I'm playing a character in a play. You know, I'm playing Kuligan and Three Sisters, and I, I have to advocate for him. I have to make him, the director, like, here's a moment. Um, and you probably had to advocate for Eames. I did. I did. And they listened to, to a certain extent. Um, it was a lot of men. You know, that was a different time. It was before the... Um, it was before the evolution of te television, really, um, this this incredible evolution that took place over the last decade or more. And um, so things were kind of old fashioned. And I was I was the only woman around for much of the time. I was the only mother on the set. I was the only mother on the crew for many years. 
there weren't mothers working that job even in the office that I was aware of. Wow. I may be wrong, but... Um, but that's so your impression, it, that you were the sole woman mm -hmm. on set, except for the guest artist that came in, Catherine Baker, right. whatever, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Kathy Chalfant. That's when I first met Kathy. Oh, Kathy was on the show too. Oh, yeah, okay. just about everybody was. That was the one of the best things about that job. That, um, I, that was my next question was that you got to watch a lot of really good actors oh my God. do their thing. Because you're we, right there on the set and you, you watch them as they did their thing. The one, the one um, scene I just saw recently was uh, Kathy Baker and Scott Cohen, oh, mother gosh. and son. And yeah, I mean, I don't want to go through the whole, the whole thing, but it was, if you want to see it, season eight, episode one. <laughs> of of um, of criminal intent. Uh, t t t tell talk about that of being with these wonderful actors and who do you remember? Oh my gosh! Well, uh, many of my friends would were on. Um, oh God, my brain. The first person that jumped to mind was Liza Minnelli. Wow, Liza Minnelli, Liza Minnelli. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear I you. Mean, we're talking super. We just to look into her eyes was like seeing her mom, but also her and um, oh, we had so many amazing actors and I wish I um, could think of them all. Who who played um, the main character in Clockwork Orange? Yeah, and he, he was just he was just in Mozart in the Jungle. Yes. Um, Malcolm McDowell. Malcolm McDowell. He was amazing. Oh, I got to go find that one. Oh, he yeah. was amazing. Um, we we had so many great people, and it was wonderful in the the later seasons when we were calm and rested. Um, because in the beginning, we became like cave people. We really did. Vincent would probably uh, concur if he were part of this conversation. But um, you know, it was it was really wonderful wait, and wait, very wait, wait, satisfying. Wait, wait, wait. You said you were like cave people. Yeah. You explain that. What what do you mean by that? Well, we didn't sleep. Ah. We didn't see our families. We saw, you know, we, we literally worked the first 22 episodes. We worked 18 hours, five days a week. So you start, I probably got picked up at 5 a.m. on Monday morning. And then I was dropped home at 5 a.m. I mean, obviously every night, but the sun was coming up on Saturday morning when I would wrap, when we would wrap and I would get home back to Brooklyn. And um, so you, you really stop being able to process stuff. You're trying to memorize lines, you know, you're, you're really survive, just trying to survive it. Um, it was, it's such, it's such an honor and a gift and a great, like, uh, a great gig. And yet there are uh, really hard things about it. And, so, as I said, there weren't very many women. So a woman would come and I'd be like, hi, hi, <laughs> hi, hi, you know, like, uh, it just, you know, it's hard to, to, to explain it all, but it's a lot of responsibility. It's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of expectation from the network and a demand that you perform. We had to, we, we, in the beginning, we shot more than we could use because an hour long episode on television is only 42 minutes because the rest is commercial. So, and then you have publicity stuff that has to be done. And so, um, it, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's, it's, 
it's over now. I mean, you. It's you, over now. You know, no, no, no. I know it's over. But I'm saying when you first, when it ended, you go like, okay, ten years we did. Oh, yeah. We kind of came back. We did a little more, and then was the feeling, whew, boy, glad that's over. Was it? What was the feeling that this this job, which was your life, was it done? Was, it was. I, it, it, the first time it ended, I was devastated. I just really didn't. I felt like I didn't know who I was. What was I going to do with my life? My whole, you know, my children's my whole life was organized around the show. And then when they brought us back for a season, that was amazing because the we were like we really were like family. These were people. People had children. I had children. Vincent had children. You know, we all knew each other's lives so well. And that was an incredible, incredible experience to come back. Um, was it possible that when you came back, you said, okay, now I'm really going to, I'm going to like take this all in. Yes, we did. You know, we I'm, absolutely Because did. you knew that that you, you felt what it's going to be when it's over, but then you got a resurrection, you know, the bird was, flew again, and now I'm going to really enjoy it for what we have. Exactly. Okay. That's exactly what it was. And we could do it well. We did it well. We did it, you know, calmly and um, productively. And we had a really, really, really good time. We relished it because we really missed it. And the fans missed us, which was not something. I mean, I, I have not. Um, I, we, we had no idea how people felt about us. Um, it really wasn't on my radar, like the internet and that people would, fans would be talking about us. It, I, I can't explain it to you, but I, I didn't understand that people cared about Gorn and Eames as much as they did. And that was really wonderful to feel yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're now 10 years past this. Mm -hmm. um, you must still be recognized as Eames. <laughs> it, does that still feel good or is it just an annoyance? Oh, it feels great, especially since, you know, I don't work as much as I once did. And this industry is not kind to women aging. And and in general, people are, inc they're incredibly kind yeah. to run into and talk to. Yep. Let's talk about your theater work, because you've yeah. done quite a bit of theater work, too. And then I'd like to get into this radio show that you did with Steppenwolf. Which oh, I'd, our podcast. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd like. I'd oh, like to oh, hear. you mean the American Clock? Yeah, let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, 1991, you were a Tony Award nominee. You worked. Uh, you got to Chicago, and you worked at the Steppenwolf Theater Company. You were the ensemble there. I um, am still. Yeah. Which Which do you prefer? Theater or the camera? Well, it really depends because I like all of the different mediums that I get to work in, um, but they all have pluses and minuses. It is really, really difficult to make a living wage in the theater. Uh, you know, if I were able to move to Chicago, which I could, you know, I could decide to do that. Certainly my ex-husband, Terry, is a founding member of Steppenwolf. You know, the ensemble members who live in Chicago and are able to work at the theater many times in a season, I think, make a fairly good living, you know, a, a fairly predictable living. Which women, is women and men. Women and men, yes. Yeah, yeah. Be, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, because I, I've just talked with... Um, 
um, some women who are in the city who are trying to uh, develop, and these are young actors who aren't kind of, they, they haven't really made names for themselves. And so what they do is they create their own projects. There's the Muse Project, Lynn Cohen, was a big mm-hmm. um, uh, proponent of the Muse Project, and then the um, uh, the Shrill Collective, or the two women groups that I've. Oh, awesome! Yeah, yeah. So, what what's going to happen to to women and and theater? I mean, one we've we've got just the problem of getting older, and you don't you know you don't have the roles, but also we've got this thing going on with the pandemic. I mean, what are your thoughts well, on that? Well, I'm sure ki- you've noticed your kitty's that... right there. What's your kitty's name? Oh, that's Cleo. Cleo, hi, Cleo. We have three cats and two dogs. He's curious about what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, she likes to sit here and, and take a look at what's going on. Um, so I don't, you must have noticed, I mean, there's a huge evolution and the roles for older women and for women in general are really changing. It's it's so exciting to see. I have hope. I mean, I, I, the, I otherwise I wouldn't keep doing it. Um, and I, I'm grateful whenever I do get to act. All now. right. If you, if you weren't acting, here's a question. What would you be doing? If I weren't acting? Yeah. I, uh, to make money, I'd probably... The sell only clothes. Other th- hmm? You'd sell clothes at the iguana. <laughs> at Back from Guatemala? <laughs> yeah, Back from Guatemala. That's it. It's closed now. It, it doesn't exist anymore. But <laughs> yeah, I, the only other thing I thought I might like to do as a profession would be to teach. Interesting. Teach mm-hmm. acting? No, probably not acting. I don't know what. Maybe English. I love literature and I don't I, I don't feel particularly qualified to teach anything but yeah yeah I want to talk about where we are now in theater mm-hmm. and, and even film and television there's no production going on now mm-hmm. and who knows when it's going to start again you yeah. you did this thing with Steppenwolf this uh radio program with the Arthur Miller play and I'd like I'd like to hear about that when you had met Joel Bernstein uh, at Kathy Chalfant's um, performance in Ovenus for a Lost Hospital, you went from place to place with a group of people. I mean, that's how the audience done because it was a place-specific uh, theater performance. And you actually dipped your hands in water together, and you washed the hands. We can't do that anymore, and I don't know if we'll ever do that again. I don't know if I'll ever go to a communal water fountain or or whatever, unless I'm really really careful. So what, what's going to happen to production? I mean, have you thought about that? Is it all going to go online? Is it going to be radio now? Is radio going to have a big kind of like, you know, going to grow up? I mean, have you thought about that? I pretty much as a coping mechanism these days, before the pandemic, but in general, I try to stay in the day that I'm in just because it keeps me more sane. Um, but I really don't know. No. This is such a strange time. We have no idea what will, how things are going to evolve. And um, so my hope is that we will come back together again in some way, shape, or form. Um, it may not look the same. It may not be the same as it was. Yeah. But um, my hope is that there'll be a vaccination. You know, there'll be a vaccine. There'll be testing that will be widespread. And I mean, this seems like the way we're headed in in because of what we've done to the environment. And you know, 
a lot of other reasons. Yeah. Um, I mean, there isn't any answer. We just we, we we just don't know, except that it's going to be different. I hope it's different, better. Let's talk about the American. I too. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the American Clock and um, this uh, project that Steppenwolf is doing in creating plays. Did you do your your lines here at the couch that you're sitting on now? I did it in them in a different couch okay. um, in a room that has no windows that is quieter because we it just, you know. Uh, yeah. So the American clock. So Steppenwolf, like many theaters, you know, they don't have any. They don't they don't they're shut. So yeah. no income bleeding money. Um, I'm on the board of the Vineyard Theater and um, many men, they also are creating online content, for, you know, for a lot of reasons, to keep people interested, to let them know that, you know, we're still here. They're, the Vineyard is rehearsing and, and continuing to workshop things because you can do that through Zoom. The American Clock for Steppenwolf came about because many people chose to surrender their tickets that they didn't get to use and let the company keep their the money. We did a whole campaign asking people if they would renew their membership for next year. Um, and in exchange, Steppenwolf is coming up with content to give them to as a thank you as you know it's also a way for us to kind of stay sane and the american clock has i don't even know how many characters many 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 characters and you have and, a lot of big names including your own obviously in this well, um but it won't be available for all of us to see we have to be a member of i don't know what will end up happening i think it is mainly for for people who have subscribed um but my hope is that that you know, we'll oh. get to share it with everybody. Oh, you should. I mean, I mean, pay it. You know, pay a ticket for it. And, mm. and, and yeah, and get possibly. It. Right. Yeah. And it's all it's radio. It's total radio. Maybe some sound effects and. Exactly. There'll be music. There'll be sound effects. Um, oh, we can. And... This got to be open to everybody. Everyone's yeah, got to be able to see this. Yeah. So. It's like it's taking us two weeks. We're doing it scene by scene. And, um, are you doing it with others? Are you are you are you doing like like a like a dialogue thing, or is it exactly like, okay, cool. over Zoom? And we all record on our phones, right? And, and Austin Pendleton is directing it. Austin. Austin is directing it. He's directed it twice beforehand. That's great. And everybody is playing. I I I surrendered one of my roles to to Lois Smith the niece of Rose, the, the most prominent female character, her, her niece, Lucille, Lois is now playing, <laughs> who was a young woman who worked in the carnival and is considering returning to the carnival. And the scene I did the other day when we were supposed to talk, Terry was in it, Terry Kinney, my ex-husband. My son was walking back behind him as, he was, as we oh, were rehearsing. God. Lori Metcalf, Gary Cole, um, Kate Arrington, um, many, many company members from Chicago and John um, otherwise. John Malkovich mm -hmm. is in it. I don't know if John is going to be in it. Okay. We did, we did a, a benefit for um, our school at Steppenwolf on Saturday night, and John recorded a, a, a video for that. Great. You promised me that you would read something from the American clock. Do you, could, can you kind of set it up and... Well, I'm going to try. Hold on one second. I got to go get my um, okay. my list of pages. 
It is not easy. American Cock, uh, Arthur Miller wrote in the 80s, and it's about the de depression. And so it's, it's uh, called the American Clock um, of vaudeville. So there's a lot of music, a lot of amazing upbeat songs were written in the 30s during the depression. So there are a lot of really cool songs that somebody will sing in, I guess, eventually. This character, Robertson, who you hear throughout the play, he's, he sort of narrates um, the play he comes in and out and he says, so I should also say, I, I noted in your original email that you were looking for things that were uplifting, but I don't know that any of this is gonna be uplifting <laughs> because it is about the depression and it is really, you know, it, we're in a depression. So um, he says, I guess the most shocking thing is what I see from the window of my Riverside Drive apartment. It's Calcutta on the Hudson, thousands of people living in cardboard boxes right next to that beautiful drive. It is like an army encampment down the length of Manhattan Island. At night, you see their campfires flickering. And some nights I go down and walk among them. Remarkable the humor they still have. But of course, people still blame themselves rather than the government. But there's never been a society that hasn't had a clock running on it. And you can't help wondering, how long? How long will they stand for this? So now Roosevelt's got in. I'm thinking, boy, he better move. He'd better move fast. And you can't help it. First thing, every night when I get home, I go to the window and look down at those fires, the flames reflecting off the river through the night. It's almost like you could be talking about now, except that we're not supposed to be together on Riverside Drive. Um, right. And I, I walk along Riverside Drive many times because we live like a block away. And um, there's still a lot of people out there because we, we, we love to be together. I, I, you know, we, we love to see each other. I don't know you, I don't know, but I like it when I see a crowd out in the park and it's a good yeah. feeling. And now I walk around and unlike this character here goes down to Riverside Drive and walks amongst the people, I try to walk away from people in order to stay safe because I'm a person of some age and got it, you know, yeah. and, and, and yet the feeling is, uh, hi, how you doing? How you getting through this? You know, it's a weird, right. weird time, you know. It really I, is. You know, thank you for sharing that. I, I wish your father well, um, and I hope he enjoys his his vacation and gets to kind of get out, <laughs> you know. Staycation. It's, I guess it's a staycation. Stay, staycation, right. <laughs> Captain Irby, thank you so much for, for joining us on Hunker Down. It was, a, it was a total pleasure. I feel just so that I get to talk to people who are doing such wonderful work. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alan. It really was a pleasure for me too. I really appreciate it. And I, this podcast is just great. Thanks for doing it. Thank you, Catherine. And, and you stay safe. You too. Right. Thanks, Alan. Bye -bye. You've been listening to the Hunker Down podcast, conversations with actors and musicians about their lives on stage during a pandemic. If you have any questions or suggestions, please contact us at Upper West Side Radio 
at gmail.com. That's one word, Upper West Side Radio at gmail.com. <laughs>